Some hooves are cloven. The turkey would have been the national bird until the bald eagle invented gerrymandering. Boulders don't know their own strength. Foghorns just sound better in the fog. Tut tut, if it looks like rain, it's probably rain. Be nice to maggots, they aren't hurting anyone. Horrible canoe trip is an oxymoron. The sun is bigger than the earth and Mount Everest combined. You'd miss the mud if it just up and flew away one day. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. I'm not going to get into a long-winded explanation every time, so I'll just let any new listeners know that this is a show about the outdoors made entirely by people who love and respect the outdoors. If you don't love and respect the outdoors, listen anyway. Maybe you'll find our passion infectious and we'll convert you. This month, before we get started, I thought it would be appropriate for me to say a few words about the harvest. This is the time of year when indoor-centric people should really sit up and take notice of what's going on outdoors. After all, the outdoors is where the sweet potatoes come from. If you're at Thanksgiving dinner and your family is just sitting around talking about the store where they got the turkey and the store where they got the corn and the store where they got the cornbread, why not stand up at your seat, shout for everyone to give you their undivided attention, and then when an uncomfortable hush has fallen over the assembly, tell them that although, yes, they found the turkey and the corn and the cornbread in stores, those things did not originate in stores. On the contrary, they originated outdoors, feeding and gobbling in the case of the turkey, and growing in complete silence in the case of the corn and the corn and the cornbread. If you've still got your family's attention at this point, this would be a good time to tell them that the first Thanksgiving dinner was actually eaten outdoors on the equivalent of a long, long picnic table with everyone seated Pilgrim Indian, Pilgrim Indian, and everyone had rosy cheeks. Then suggest that the meal be moved outdoors in order to more authentically honor the tradition. All the dishes should be moved to any available counter space so that the men can take the tablecloth off of the massive heavy table and move it out into the yard. This may require taking some doors off of hinges, but you'll know it's possible because they got the table into the house somehow, didn't they? Getting the kids' table out into the yard should be simple as it's typically much smaller than the regular table. If your kids' table is bigger than your regular table, then you've already thrown any chance of authentically honoring the tradition straight into the garbage, so you might as well have the men bring the regular table back inside. Anyway, assuming your tables are in the correct proportion to each other, once the men have found a flat patch of ground outdoors for the table and the tablecloth has been replaced, everyone should bring their own chairs and plates outdoors to the table, being careful not to spill any of their half-eaten food on the way. Coats, hats, and gloves may be necessary. If it's raining or sleeting or snowing, you will want to cover the gravy so it doesn't become diluted. Don't let the wind blow your napkins away. No one at the first Thanksgiving would have been careless enough to let something like that happen. And speaking of the wind, if it keeps blowing out the candles, position your bodies so that they act as windbreaks for the candles, which was a technique taught to the pilgrims by the Indians at the first Thanksgiving, and it sort of works today even as it sort of worked those many years ago. If neighborhood animals come around the table begging for food, a good way to avoid giving them any is to insist that they say what they're thankful for before they get any Thanksgiving dinner. Being animals, it's unlikely that they'll even understand the question, much less find a way to communicate an answer to it, so they won't get so much as a dinner roll. I should mention that if your family is reluctant to move the meal outdoors, you can point out to them that there were some pilgrims who ate indoors during that first Thanksgiving. 
the suspected witches, the known witches, the grave robbers, the false prophets, the vague prophets, and the children of comatose parents and the associates of those children. No self-respecting family will want to remain indoors while eating Thanksgiving dinner after hearing a list like that. And also, say a prayer for our regular contributors, many of whom are without a place to spend Thanksgiving. Heaven knows I wouldn't feel comfortable inviting them to any Thanksgiving dinner I might attend, so it's no wonder that they're alone on the holiday. And granted, of the bridges they've burned, arson has more commonly been the cause as opposed to simple carelessness. Something about figurative bridges turns these people into real pyromaniacs, but bless them, they weep at the mere mention of the words forest fire. Anyway, the harvest is in and it's time to partake. Let's get started, shall we? As I'm sure most of you are aware, the Thanksgiving holiday is fast approaching, and that means that Thanksgiving dinner is fast approaching. Gentlemen's Mills knows that. As delicious as their cereals and trail mixes are, you're probably going to be eating traditional Thanksgiving foods at your Thanksgiving dinner, and that's just fine with them because they've got something else to sell you. Outdoors themed centerpieces for the table. Most people I know will tell you that one of the most important areas of any Thanksgiving dinner table is the area right in the center. Everyone's going to be seeing a lot of that area whenever they look up, so you'd better fill that area with something good. And Gentleman's Mills is here to offer you many good, good options. And so, here they are, the Gentleman's Mills 2014 Thanksgiving Dinner Centerpieces. Jams Jellies, a display of replicas of several unique jellies that Dr. Jams discovered in his travels abroad. The informational placards beneath each jelly make for dry academic reading. Herd of Squash. A dozen butternut squash are arranged so it looks as if they're thundering across the open plains of your dinner table. Ghosts of Thanksgiving's Past. This festive centerpiece, while seemingly elaborate, is actually a pile of old turkey skeletons. Add this year's turkey skeleton for festive fun. Just remember to clean it of meat and viscera first. Thankful for. The actual two feet by two feet concrete slab famously marking the four corners, the only point of intersection of four of the United States, with the word thankful artfully spray painted across it, must be sold immediately. Termite Turkey for Tots, a brittle high volume glass turkey completely full of live termites, guaranteed. The Nina, the Pinto, and the Santa whatever. Models of three of those old timey wooden ships, like they're wooden and they have anchors and stuff, you know. Too big of a hat. It's a pilgrim hat, but if you lift it up, there's the figurine of a tiny bareheaded pilgrim under there. Eat'em Treat'em Robots. A rock'em sock'em robot toy with the heads removed and replaced with the heads of a pilgrim and an Indian. In their hands are a tiny fork and knife each. Bunny Foodman. Pull the string to hear what entree Bunny is most thankful for, always along with a reminder that his last name is pronounced Food, like Wood, and that he prefers Benny. Peel or Eel. One pot has an orange peel, the other has a hungry eel. The key to the ovens in one of the pots, find it or else no meal. Insider hint to Out of All Doors listeners, the key can be found in the pot with the eel. Alright, it's time again to check in with friend of the show, Frankly Frank. A few people have written in some outdoors-related questions, and Frankly Frank is going to answer those questions in the most direct, straightforward, and concise way that he knows how. The first one says, uh, Dear Frankly Frank, The other day, while taking a stroll through the park, I noticed a slug in danger. It was heading straight for the bike path, so I whisked it away, set it under a bush, and went on my way thinking I'd feel like the Good Samaritan. Instead, I was troubled. 
I doubted and questioned my action. I wondered if what I did was a good deed or if it violated the natural will of this creature. Please help me set my mind at ease. Concerned in Milwaukee. Dear Concerned, What you've asked here is a question I receive almost every day. The dilemma of the troubled mind, as it relates to thoughts and experiences, as well as unforeseen feelings and sensations. What you're experiencing is not uncommon to those who are often thought to undergo what I like to term experiences, and what others call happenings. Never mind the distinction between the two terms, for they're in many ways somewhat similar to each other. I'll be frank here. Being outdoors is quite a vehicle to experience happenings, and anything you can do to make those experiences happen, all the better. Dear Frankly Frank, what can I do about it? Estranged in Ypsilanti. Dear Estranged, it's difficult to even know where to begin. First of all, you confuse the word it. It is not the weather, dear child, not the sleety conditions causing cold and slippage on the trail, but your reaction to that weather. You can't place the blame on the weather itself. Midday rain showers in these now colder months, precipitation turning icy as it reaches our bodies, handholds becoming slippery. The trail underfoot a veritable ice-skating rink. But this is all natural, as unchangeable as, well, the weather. What you can do about it, estranged, is first define the true problem at hand, which is your lackadaisical attitude to the weather and lack of preparedness concerning proper garments. You can't simply take a pair of mid-length Columbia brand khaki shorts and a neoprene fine mesh diamond brand top and flimsy North Face windbreaker and expect it to be invincible. You have to prepare for the weather at hand, including the possibility of it growing worse. To be frank, stop fooling around, tough guy. I recommend none less than a synthetic Under Armour underlayer covered by a thick woolen outer layer covered itself by a more substantial jacket. Matched with an all-weather sweat-wicking Patagonia hat, spandex pants, underlayers, full-length synthetic hiking pants, and thick full-wool socks. And for gracious sakes, carry a poncho. Dear Frankly Frank, winter caused me to become a different person last year. I was irritable and sulky nearly every day and lacked motivation to head outside. I tried everything. I woke up to a piping hot bowl of oatmeal every morning. I consumed a lot of vitamin D supplements. I invested in a heated blanket, and I splurged on expensive tea. None of these methods did the trick. What are some things I can do in my routine now to help me to build up stamina for the months ahead? Hopeful in Milwaukee. Dear Hopeful, what we have here is the thought of an idea, making itself known first to the brain and then to the body. We make the things we need to sustain ourselves, sometimes. And then at other times, we choose not to pursue such habits. Being as what we can do is limited by what we cannot do, it's often difficult to 
to know what path is best when choosing a path to potentially follow or not. There's little else to be aware of. There are things that may be felt. Sometimes an event will event without our prior knowledge, but what happens next is anyone's happen. Let me be frank. Is, are, we, us, and, and, and. All right, listeners, I hate to even have to address this, but at this point it's unavoidable. Uh, as many of you know, I've made a few references to the now-defunct blog where Out of All Doors first got started. It was a beautiful thing that ended before its time, but it brought most of the people responsible for this podcast together, so we're always going to look back on those years with fondness. But, okay, here's the thing. We didn't stop doing the blog because we lost interest or... All right, okay, I admit it. It was my fault. All right, at the time when I first started the blog... I was really into the word salmonella. Like, I thought it was so funny that the word is so pretty and fun to say, but it means something bad. It's this awful thing, but it sounds nice. So there was this whole inside joke where I would start my posts with salmonella, like it was this friendly greeting, and then I would end each post with salmonella as my sign-off, and I would also sort of pepper it all through my posts and in all my comments on other people's posts and in personal emails that I sent to people I met through the blog. And, oh, I had a T-shirt custom-made that said salmonella on it, and I had a custom-made baseball cap that also said salmonella on it. And I even toyed with the idea of changing the name of the blog to salmonella, but everyone shot that down. And I also sort of started using it as a euphemism for all kinds of things, good and bad, like saying salmonella when I was angry or like salmonella when I was impressed or that's so salmonella when I thought something was really cool or really uncool. And listen, I was aware of the grumbling going on about what some people seem to think was my overuse of the word salmonella, but it was my thing, you know. Uh, So anyway, salmonella was probably a bad choice for the password for the blog. Well, I know it was a bad choice because this awful girl named Maya, and I don't want to get into our connection with her, but suffice to say it's a mess. But anyway, Maya guessed the password, logged in as me, changed the password to who knows what, and wiped all the content. Three years of posts and comments all gone. And for the longest time, we didn't know who'd done it or why. But I'm sorry to say, now we do know because Maya has turned outofalldoors.wordpress.com, our former home, into her own personal blog about the indoors called The Sheltered Life. And it is literally the worst thing I've ever seen. I can't really express to you how mad this makes me that she would do this. I've been sending her irate emails nonstop since someone brought it to my attention, but she won't respond. I mean... Her blog would be bad enough just on its own, but the fact that it has the same URL that our Out of All Doors blog had, I mean, that's just, I mean, it makes me ill. So anyway, I don't want you to go to the site because I don't want her to get any clicks or whatever, but I'm going to read you her first post so you can hear how terrible this really is. So here goes, and I hope you've got a receptacle to puke in nearby because you're going to need it. All right, so it's titled, Home is Where the Poison Ivy Isn't. (laughs) So here it goes. Hello, world, or for my British readers, hello. Welcome to the first post of my new blog, The Sheltered Life. With all the shows, blogs, articles, apps, and social medias focusing on the outdoors, overrated, am I right? (laughs) It's way past time for a blog that gives the real story, the story of the indoors, the best of the doors, as all of us in the in crowd already know. 
I'm so excited to bring you posts about how to explore the fascinating world inside your own home. Wooster and Jeeves, the world's cutest pair of puggles, will be helping me come up with lots of great ways to make your house a pet paradise. And I'll even be heading right out of my comfort zone with some fun kid-friendly activities and some romantic hubby-friendly activities. It's the inside scoop. But in this first post, I wanted to answer some frequently asked questions right off the bat. Really, these questions aren't frequently asked yet since this is my very first post. So really, these are only frequently askable questions. But since I'm answering them here right out in the open, hopefully soon they'll be never asked questions. Q. Why is the URL for this blog out of all doors.wordpress.com? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I want to know. A. For my first A, let me tell a story. I tried to get the shelteredlife.wordpress.com, but it turns out it's already taken by the blog of a Humane Society chapter that hires homeschooled children to euthanize their unadopted animals. So I picked out of all doors in honor of the dream that inspired me to start this blog. Q. What was the dream, Maya? A. I was lying on the floor of a house just like mine, only much larger and with lots of doors on every wall, dozens of doors, scores of doors. But then as I was trying to take in all the doors, they began to slowly disappear. One by one, a hundred doors became 75, 75 became 62, 62 became 12, until there was just one door left, right in front of me, across the long, empty room. As I looked at the door, I realized that it would soon vanish, too, and that I would never be able to leave the house again. Oh, there were also no windows in the dream house. I should have mentioned that earlier. And then, poof, it was gone. I was out of all doors. But instead of panic, a deep calm fell over me, and soon the calm gave way to something magical, a joy that I couldn't express. Why? Because I realized that I didn't need any doors. I didn't even want any doors. Indoors, where I already was, was the only place I wanted to be. Then I woke up, and I knew what the dream meant. I said to myself, out loud, I need to blog. And the rest, as they say, is history. Q. I'm so sick of all the eco-maniacs on all those outdoor blogs and podcasts. Is this blog just going to be full of out-there radical politics, too? A. Oh, man, Q, I hear you, but don't worry. I'm no radical. It's true. I love the indoors, but unlike those other blogs, I'm not all negative about the other side. I don't hate the outdoors. Heck, my house, which is where... I love to be is itself almost entirely outdoors. So think of me as a moderate voice, bringing a little reason and perspective to this mad, mad e-world. Ugh. So, yeah, that's what we're dealing with here. So I just want to set the record straight that we here at Out of All Doors have nothing to do with the sheltered life. We hate it, and we condemn the use of our former web address as the home for that garbage. So please feel free to email Maya or whatever you want to do to make her stop. I give you my blessing. Yeah. All right, let's just move on. We approached the ancient castle on a narrow forgotten road, winding among the rocks and blighted trees. The crumbling towers loom over us in the overcast sky, and their windows are very thin. We cross the drawbridge, and it creaks under our feet as the stagnant moat water down below just sits there, stinking away. The castle's massive front door is ajar, and we step into a vast, dark hall wherein our nervous throat-clearing noises echo back to us. Above us, way up in the lofty ceiling of the hall, we sense them hanging there, tiny hearts awaiting night, expressive faces slack in their slumber. We have entered the Battery. 
The sailors lashed the bat to the mast for his own good, for only he could hear the ultrasonic song of the sirens. Only he was in danger of succumbing to their seductive harmonies, which they were singing at a frequency of roughly 60 kilohertz, well beyond the upper limit of human hearing. The sea was calm, but the sailors gathered around the bat and watched him writhe against his bonds, flexing his wings against the tight cords and hissing in rage and desperation. We should let him go, said someone. I can't bear to see him like this. No, shouted another. He'll fly to his doom, out over the waves and gone forever, pulled down into the depths where no bat should ever go. Look, shouted another. He's getting even more upset. Everyone looked, and yes, the bat was visibly the most upset they'd ever seen him, and they'd seen him pretty upset before, like when one of the sailors had tried to outfit him with little goggles, and another time when he bonked his head on a cannon. He's mad because we don't trust his self-control, shouted another sailor. He's mad because we doubt his will. And with that, the sailor lunged forward and sliced through the bat's bonds with his cutlass. Everyone groaned as the bat immediately took wing over the side of the ship and out single-mindedly across the watery waves. Great, said one sailor to the sailor who had freed the bat. I so want to keelhaul you right now. I'm not even joking. Dr. Morrowell seeks to learn of the government of bats. How do they make decisions as a group is a question for which he is interested in finding an answer. He dresses all in black and goes down into a cave. He bolts a bar to the ceiling of the cave and then hangs from the bar by his legs among the bats, observing them as he lives among them. This lasts for maybe a couple of minutes before he passes out and falls straight down to the floor of the cave. He's very fortunate not to break his neck. When he awakens, Dr. Morrowell finds himself drifting down a subterranean river in complete darkness on a raft made of solidified guano. Feeling around with his clumsy hands, he finds a sandwich next to him on the raft. It's made out of two pieces of whole grain bread, with a paralyzed but still alive mole between them. It's not a good sandwich for a man like Dr. Morrowell, but the bats clearly meant well. Dr. Morrowell throws the mole in the water to put it out of its misery and eats the bread. But why is he crying? It's because he does not know how the bats decided what to do with him after he fell. Did they vote on a course of action? Did an elected leader step forward to make a decision? Or did a leader who inherited the authority over the bats by virtue of his royal lineage choose this fate for Dr. Morrowell? Riding blindly on his guano raft, carried by the dark current, Dr. Morrowell doubts he will ever know the answers to these questions. It's a bitter pill to swallow, and not just because that whole grain bread was so dry. Unbeknownst to Dr. Morrowell, three members of the Bat oligarchy fly along just above and behind him, making sure he stays safe until he reaches the destination. They are, however, embarrassed about the poorly received sandwich. That was an error. When you brush a bat, make sure you use a brush of the correct size and do not brush too hard or too many times. Three light brushes is often plenty to make the bat's coat look as good as the bat wants it to look. It may not look as good as you want it to look after three brushes, but why are you really brushing this bat? If you're doing it to get the bat's coat up to your standards, then just set that brush right down and get out. The bat will wait patiently by the brush until a bat brusher motivated less by selfish concerns happens upon it. Unless, of course, your selfish brushing methods have caused the bat to turn its back on being brushed for life. 
If you wanted to brush a bat how you wanted to brush a bat, you should have purchased a lifelike replica bat or an anonymous taxidermied bat. I almost bought a taxidermied bat at an antique mall in Cincinnati one time, but it was too expensive. It was small, it was under glass, mounted with wings spread and teeth bare, just how it should be. I decided against it, maybe because I'd recently heard a sermon about stewardship. Then we went outside and saw that my car had a flat tire. I should have purchased that taxidermied bat. I should have bought it. And then one night, leagues from where they'd last seen him, the bat returned to the ship, carrying tokens of the siren's respect and admiration and a pouch around his neck. The sailors were stunned, incredulous. They didn't kill you? asked one. They didn't drag you down into the depths of the sea? Obviously not, said another, going through the bat's pouch. Look what they gave him. Locks of shimmering hair intertwined with fragrant violet seaweed, the likes of which we've never seen. A silver crab leg, a tiny piccolo made of coral, a suction cup from an infant sea monster's tentacle. Why didn't he kill them, cried one of the sailors. Why do you care, asked another. We couldn't hear their singing at that frequency anyway. Yes, said another sailor, but what about the continued danger to his fellow bats who can also hear sounds at that frequency, but who lack whatever qualities he possesses that charmed the usually murderous sirens? All the sailors looked up to where the bat hung suspended upside down in the rigging. He was fast asleep, snoring cartoonishly. And then they remembered. He was the only seagoing bat in the world. I don't know about you, but I think we should leave now. Don't get me wrong, castles are fun. They're fascinating. Did you know that they're historical? We don't really need to see all of it. Like the throne room, who cares? The torture chamber, who cares? Wave to the bats. They're not going to wave back, but it's a symbolic gesture, so just do it. That's a nice wave you've got there. Go ahead and keep waving as we leave the battery. It's time now to check in with Harrison Blum as he seeks to become a real amateur birdwatcher and maybe impress a certain someone along the way. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. Perhaps someday soon I'll address you as one, but as of yet it seems Eleanor has not listened to the podcast. The other day I ran into her sister Francine at the market, very casually mentioned out of all doors, and was met with a great deal of confusion. Since Eleanor and Francine speak each morning, I can only assume that had Eleanor listened to my first field report, she would have mentioned it fondly to her sister. Patience and fortitude conquer all things, Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, and so I, Harrison Blum, continue on this journey. Let me start this field report, however, with a correction. Unfortunately, my first sighting was not a wren, but a rose-breasted grosbeak. Additionally, I've come to learn that he was in fact a she, as the female of the species is apparently a brownish speckled thing that my new guidebook considers, quote, wholly unremarkable. I imagine that like wine, my bird palate will ripen with experience, for I initially found her quite beautiful. I see now that I was incorrect. Her coat was, scientifically speaking, dull and crusty, especially when compared to her male counterpart. While the male rose-breasted grosbeak is rose-breasted, his beak is, in fact, quite handsome. I understand that it must be difficult to base bird names on appearance and gender, but it might be more accurate to call the female, say, a dirt-breasted grosbeak, and the male a rose-breasted wonderbeak. 
I'd also consider renaming the female a dirt-coated grosbeak, as I believe we should never so candidly mention a woman's breasts, no matter the species. That said, not everything can be something, so for now I'll leave the naming to the bird scientists. In short, I admit fault in my previous bird classification and vow to do better. I will not master this craft in one month or two, so for now I appreciate your patience. The guidebook I mentioned earlier, Birds of the Midwest, has proven to be an invaluable resource, however. For example, I learned that names are important. Bird watching, it seems, is all about the names. Everything has one. A young duck is called a duckling. A young goose, a gosling. A puffin, a puffling. I'm not yet sure what a young swan is called, but I assume it's a swanling. A robin, a robling. A flamingo, a flamingling. Furthermore, a hatchling is a very recently hatched bird, a nestling is several days old, and a fledgling is a young bird ready to leave the nest. In that way, one bird could be a swanling hatchling, swanling nestling, and fledgling swanling all before it's even a swan. We humans just call babies babies until they're children, but I suppose a bird's life moves faster than a human's. Scientists probably interject more names to maintain accurate growth records. I do, however, wonder why we don't track bird years like we track dog years. Perhaps there are too many species, or the birthday parties prove too mountainous. No one wants to be 785, even in bird years. From this guidebook, I also learned that I'm a bird watcher and not a birder. While to me the terms seem interchangeable, I assure you they are not. From what I've gathered, Birdwatching is a casual term that usually denotes a hobby. Birding, on the other hand, also denotes a hobby, but a more serious one. Birders tend to get upset when you call them bird watchers, most likely because you're naming them incorrectly and unscientifically. For now, because I only have one guidebook, and I do not yet own binoculars, and so far the only bird I've classified I did so incorrectly, I would and should consider myself a bird watcher, and not a birder. Perhaps one day this will change, but for now please know that I'll relish the title if and when you all feel I've sufficiently earned the distinction. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love always, Harrison. And now here are some more Gentleman's Mills 2014 Thanksgiving dinner centerpieces. Mazer melon, a freak ear of corn that grew in the shape of a big old watermelon. Go ahead and stare. Potato staircase, a flight of 15 small steps for your baked potatoes to tumble down. Abominable snowman, a fierce majestic beast, elusive and rugged, handcrafted from pine and painted by artisans. Must order two weeks in advance and clear 225 square feet of living area prior to the craftsman's arrival. I contacted Gentleman's Mills to ask them what this has to do with Thanksgiving and they admitted that the craftsmen are just dying to build it and would really like me to push it. Look to thy cranberries. A portrait of a stern man admonishing you to focus on your food. This is dinner time, after all. Punkin Drublick. Actually a very tasteful and well-crafted display of the original Thanksgiving feast that Better Homes and Gardens calls our personal favorite and worst-named centerpiece this season. Big piles of turkey meat. Not to be confused with the actual serving dish filled with edible piles of turkey meat, big piles of turkey meat is made of toxic asbestos and made to look like turkey meat. Bluis and Ark, a carving of Babe the Blue Ox trying to navigate the Columbia River in a too-big wooden vessel, eternally grateful to his guide, a historically accurately accessorized Sacagawea figurine. Thanks, Gavin, official boxed set. 
Thanksgiving's official spokespersonage endorses this timely, tasteful centerpiece, then includes an autographed photo of Gavin, a typed letter of what Gavin is most thankful for, a miniature cornucopia, and samples of Gavin's favorite gravies. Faxgiving. Why not celebrate the holiday with a fax machine in the shape of a turkey? The fax machine noisily sends and receives messages of thanks throughout the meal. Sneeze Tune, a giant metallic bowl into which everyone at the dinner table may sneeze. Turkey's Horror, a hologram of an anthropomorphic turkey watches in horror and revulsion as you eat one of his brethren. Tim Turkey, not to be confused with Tom Turkey. Eaten enough yet? A dome-shaped toy blares sirens, flashes lights, and asks, Eaten enough yet? Eaten enough yet? Eaten enough yet? Press the no button at the top of the dome to silence it for three seconds. Total Recall Thanksgiving Edition. The admittedly empty DVD case of Total Recall decorated with colorful leaves cut from construction paper. Family members can recall favorite scenes from the movie and generally discuss how thankful they are to have seen Total Recall and also wonder how the movie would have changed were it set in the autumn. All right, we're here on uh, Squall Takes the Bait with Squall and Matt. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, this is Matt. Checking in. All right. Um, so we're going to try. Matt, first of all, just to address the messiness of last time, Matt has agreed he's not pressing legal action on me or Squall anymore. That's correct, right, Matt? Well, yeah. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not admitting that I'm wrong, but I'm saying that it's just it's too much trouble to pursue. So I'm just leaving it. And, yeah, like you said, try to move on. And in sort of a, in, in a spirit of, of making peace, You've brought several questions, uh, specific questions, to Squall on the subject of fishing, the area of his expertise, that we're going to go through, and then hopefully that'll just kind of keep us on track and keep us focused on what this is supposed to be about, which is an outdoors show. Um, so, Hold on. I thought we were going to, going to cycling. I'm done with this fishing bull****. Well, the cycling expert we had, uh, Andy was going to talk to you about cycling, but he doesn't like this segment, and he didn't want to be on it. Probably because of something you said, Squall. Again, I restate, I'm the expert on cycling, and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, I mean, the questions we have, I don't. It look. It sounds like it, do, it doesn't look like all of them are only to do with fishing. So, I mean, just address them as best you can with what we've got, and maybe next time we can do something different. But we, I mean, okay. All right. All right. So, um, the first one we have here uh, is from. Well, it says, Dear Squall, what requirements does someone have to have to be considered an expert in a field? For example, fishing. Cheers and thanks, Melissa. Well, Melissa, um, first of all, glad you emailed the show. Glad you liked the show. Glad you put up with these two nincompoops long enough to hear what I have to say. All right. Um... Well, first of all, to be an expert in any field, you have to have multiple years of study in that field, such as fishing, which doesn't apply to me. Um, You would probably have to have the uh, materials 
been in, both said, both said um, activity, like, uh, for example, being a writer, to you would have to have a lot of paper, and you'd have to have a lot of, like, stationary pencils, pens, uh, erasers, probably in a computer with a keyboard. All right, I, th- I think I think that one's sufficiently answered. Let's uh, move on to the next one. Uh, Dear Squall, long-time listener, first-time writer, I enjoy both your casts, your podcasts, and your literal fishing casts. In any case, here's my question. Given an example where a primary party endorses activities that a secondary party has no business in undertaking, given skill level and vast differences in stature between the two parties, wouldn't the primary party be culpable in the event that harm were to befall the secondary party? Best Jackson. Nope. That is, I disagree with that statement. Did you did you even follow that? That just sounded like legalese to me. It did. If Jackson wants to ask that question. Jackson asked that question. I mean, you can't. Well, you, you you know, yeah, including fans now. I I talked to my lawyer about it, and he said nope. If if the uh, advice you gave. It's taken by the person literally, then it's their own fault. Well, did did Jack? Did, who is Jackson, Matt? Hey, one of the fans, one of the, one of the people I said it to. And uh, why does he sound like a he, lawyer? I, that's the question he asked. I mean, he shot it right back to me. So I figured, well, you know, he, he's the first one who sent me a response back, and I figured he ought to be included. All right. Well, well, let's let's move on because I don't want to dwell on this legal thing. I thought we were putting that behind us that that was done. No, no, no. no that's what he. Hey, listen. I mean, this would be like a celebrity answering your, you know, question on air. I figured I'd give him the chance to. Well, but I, that's that's just some like ugliness that we don't want to deal with. We're moving on. Okay, dear Squall, Thank you're. What? Thank you, Jackson, for your email. <laughs> it's very charitable of you, Squall. Dear Squall, you're cute. I think your fishing show is the bomb. Maybe we can hook up after I ask this question. My question is, what is your favorite aphorism in regards to fishing? And how do you apply it to your own life? Love, Emmanuel. Is that real, Hat? That's real. I mean, you know, Squall has fans across the board. Listen, I mean, I, I, you know, that's the most informal little, you know, cute message. I don't see what the issue is with that. All right. Well, can you answer the can you answer the question, Squall? What is your favorite aphorism in regards to fishing, and how do you apply it to your own life? First of all, I got to say I'm not a I'm not homosexual. So sorry, Emmanuel. I'm not in your. I think I <laughs> wait. I think it might be Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it's Emmanuel, the girl. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, she she can uh, look up my Facebook. Or I'm actually, I'm actually named Squall. Okay, well, she's not... Great, but she's asking a question that you haven't addressed. We're trying to keep this moving, remember? Yeah, okay, let me get into it. All right, so the uh, great feminist Gloria Steinem said, a, man, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. How does that apply and to I, your own life? I believe that's false because Gloria Steinem's a dumb... 
think every woman needs a man. During its heyday, the Out of All Doors blog was a thriving community composed of all different kinds of Out of All Doors men and Out of All Doors women from all walks of life. One of the things that most surprised me, though, was the sheer number of hermits who came to call Out of All Doors their online home. At our peak, I would say that Out of All Doors was the foremost gathering spot for hermits on the Internet. Since the dissolution of the blog, those hermits have scattered and we've lost track of many of them, but we've maintained connections with a few and we're still as fascinated with hermitry as ever. And so, going forward, we're going to make more of an effort to shine a light on hermitry in an effort to try to further understand it, to find out what makes it appeal to a certain kind of person, and to educate you, the listener, on the fundamentals of the hermit lifestyle. This time we sent our intrepid young correspondent, Cayman Bird, to talk to a man known as Hermit Ben. We think you'll find the resulting interview enlightening. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me, Hermit Ben. I'll make it quick. I'm busy and I don't really like people. I didn't realize you were busy. When I got here, you were passed out in that pile of sticks outside your hut. But how do you think that pile of sticks got there? And where do you think that pile of sticks is going? That's your first lesson. Your second lesson is this. Where do I live? Um, in this hut. Wrong. I rest in this hut. I live out there. In the forest and the hills and the streams. Do you see the distinction? Well, I see what you're doing. It's just semantics. No, the distinction is intrinsic. It is fundamental. I believe that you believe that. What did you do before you became a hermit? I wasted my life. I sought security through the accumulation of possessions and in the acceptance of other people who were also wasting their lives. So you accumulate a lot of possessions and gain the acceptance of a lot of people, and you still didn't feel secure? Uh, yes. Because I did a little research, and I found out that, before you came here, you were voted Scottsdale, Arizona's most despised homeless man four years in a row. Okay, yeah, but before that. What were you doing before that? I mean, specifically. I was... uh, an investment banker. Did you just say investment banker? I'm not here to talk about my past. I thought you wanted to know about the life of a hermit. All right, let's talk about that. Good. How did your past experience as an investment banker and Scottsdale, Arizona's most despised homeless man four years running prepare you for a life spent gathering sticks into piles on top of which you then pass out? You probably own a computer, don't you? Yes, I do. A big, giant computer. The size of a room, running 10 or 12 calculations per second. You're getting colder. You know what I own? No, I don't. I own what no man can own. Nor can man be owned by it, nor can the ownership of man be said to be... I'm going to stop you there and end the interview. The end. This time on the Saint's Bestiary, the Saint has sent in drawings and field notes of two remarkable new beasts. As usual, we don't know where or when he encountered these beasts, and, as they've never been recorded before, his drawings and notes are, as of now, the only information the world has on these beasts. I'm going to attempt to describe the Saint's sketches, and then I'll let you hear the recordings of his notes on the beast's behavior in his own voice. 
The first beast is on four legs and furry. Its tail is tucked forward between its legs, and on its face is an expression of either terror, rage, or both. We can see the back half of a smaller animal running away out of the frame, but the way the beast's legs are positioned makes it look as if it's stopping dead in its tracks or perhaps even backpedaling. Fright Bandit. Fright Bandit has a sense which allows him to detect fear in other animals. But if the Fright Bandit is within a few feet of a scared animal, his senses cause him to absorb the fear and get scared himself. A big problem is that the Fright Bandit looks very scary. Several times I thought I was cooked and they were going to eat me. However, once I got good and scared, the Fright Bandits all tucked tail and ran. Once I snuck up on one at the tree line, I noticed that they didn't ever get meat despite sharp, unused teeth. They just mushed up some algae from the swamp, pausing only to look up at heaven above. I wondered and wondered what they would cry out if they could, but I don't have to go out on a limb to guess that they wish they could eat some fresh meat without the little cute frightened meat scaring him away. The second beast is not hard to describe. It looks like a tropical bird, but instead of having regular bird legs, it has extremely long, bare, human-looking legs with thighs, knees, calves, feet, all of it. Leopard. I've only seen one leopard. Elusive and athletic, the leopard appears as friendly as it is agile, despite having a predator's beak. Its trunk, neck, head, and wings are all those of a bird, however, I believe it is unable to fly. On the other hand, it may be able to fly, but strictly chooses to rely on its legs. As I imagine, the legs were those of a well-tanned athletic man. The leopard has unbelievable proportions. The body, tail, and head could easily fit in your hand. But those muscular legs are roughly 18 inches tall. When I saw the leopard, it had already seen me and was frozen in its tracks, staring at me. Slowly, slowly, I inched toward him. I got within five feet, and just when I thought he was going to let me pet him, he turned sprinted, and leaped into some reeds. Now these reeds were only two feet tall, but the leopard easily jumped nine feet into the air to land in them before crashing into the reeds and disappearing from my searching eyes and ears. I don't know if he was showing off for me, a gift kinder than letting me pet him, if he just liked to jump way higher than he needed to, or if that's how he attracts girl leopards. We want to again thank the saint for sharing his astounding discoveries in the field of beasts with us, and if you want to find him on Twitter, you can. He's at Saint Social Media, but there's no E in media. He's been slow to do much with his Twitter account, but he did use it to post his incredible sketch of the infamous no-chin from episode 2, so I encourage you to check that out. And now as an added bonus, we're going to play something that the saint sent me called Vicious Cycle Number 1. He included no accompanying message, so I have as much context for it as you will, and I'll admit I was surprised at its content because I didn't know the saint was interested in anything except for beasts, really. So I'm just going to play it as it is and let it stand on its own, I think, considerable merits. Here is Vicious Cycle number one. What's that? Oh yeah, your bike will be plenty of good. Plus, with your skills, you can get through any pickle. This is the Vicious Cycle, and I'm the saint. 
All right, look down at the trail. You see all those people crashed on the sides of the trail? And look even up further ahead. See how tired he had to stop. Okay, let's go. Blurring greens, blurring browns, blurring yellows. Is that snow? Can't tell, going too fast. Already past all those other people. We have this part of the trail all to ourselves. Hmm, is the trail paved? It feels awfully flat. No, we're just in really good shape, and so our bodies aren't shaking. It felt paved as a result. Do you need to stop to catch your breath? What's that you say? This is you catching your breath? You have great composure and cardiovascular fitness. Okay, that was a good trail. Wow, you're not even sweating, and you were in the same gear the entire time. That was like, mmm, 14 miles. Thanks for coming on this woodland trail with me. This has been the vicious cycle, and I'm the saint. Here on Out of All Doors, we've been reading entries from the diary of a man named Albert Tides who lived with his family on the Great Plains in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. These diary entries were sent to us by his descendant, Lionel Tides. Last time we learned of the Tides family's struggles as the dust storms really began to plague the region in earnest. This, our third installment of Diary of a Dust Bowl Farmer, will conclude the segment as these few entries are the last that Albert Tides wrote. And remember, there are no dates, so we do not know how much time has passed between each entry. We begin for the last time with Entry 9. During today's dust storm, I just went about my business as if nothing was amiss. My goal is to show my resolve to the dust, to show that all the dust wasn't getting to me. I nearly died while trying to lean casually on a fence post while drinking a cool glass of lemonade. For one thing, it took me forever to find the fence, and my glass of lemonade filled up with dust, so it was basically just a glass of sludge. Then, when I found the fence post, the dust in my eyes made me miss it when I tried to lean on it, and I became entangled in the barbed wire. Also, the lemonade sludge, which had become warm, spilled all over my shirt, which I admit was one of my worst shirts already, because despite my desire to show the dust storm it had no effect on me, I'm not made of shirts, nor am I made of money with which to buy more shirts. I'm made of flesh and blood, and between you and me, I can't stand dust storms. Entry 10. My children and I had a big fight about who hates dust more, all of them collectively or me. Just to be clear, I was saying they collectively hate it more than me because I don't even hate it that much. It's just part of life on the plains and so on. But they were saying that I hate dust more than all of them combined and that they know this to be true because of the frequency of my outbursts, the frequency of my breakdowns, and the infrequency of me doing anything that isn't either an outburst, a breakdown, or both, a state I'm sometimes in for which they've invented the word burst down. In fact, I had a burst down right then and there, but that proves nothing because it wasn't about dust. It was about the fact that I knew my children were right because I really do hate dust more than all of them combined, and I'd been hoping they didn't know that. Entry 11. It rained today. Oh, who am I kidding? It didn't rain today. Entry 12. Today, one of my children asked me if wheat is real or if it's just make-believe like hope. I narrowly avoided a burst down, although I did have a meltdown and an outburst in such quick succession that it could have been easily mistaken for a burst down. Entry 13. Today one of my children brought a handful of dust to me and asked me if she could keep it as a pet. My stomach heaved with revulsion and outrage, but I managed to maintain control until the child said that she was going to name her pet dust Daddy after me. What followed was definitely a burst down. There's no denying that. 
Entry 14. There was a break in the dust today, so I did some planting, by which I mean that I buried some gaunt livestock. As I was just finishing up, Mr. Axifer came by on his horse, which was almost as gaunt as the livestock I was burying, and he said, How come you're burying that dead livestock? Shouldn't you be butchering them to eat what paltry meat is left on their bones and then burning the remains? Well, I was embarrassed, but me and Mr. Axifer shared a hearty laugh at my absent-mindedness. A little levity felt good after all the recent misery. Entry 15. Today was just one dust storm after another. It was difficult to tell where one ended and another began, or maybe it was all just one big dust storm. Maybe they've all been one dust storm, just the same one over and over, and any perceived differences were caused by changes in me, or maybe by the dust storm revealing different facets of itself each time. This time it's fury, this time it's oppressive weight, this time it's howling voice, this time it's pettiness, this time it's light-swallowing power. While I sat in the kitchen and pondered these things, Junie, my youngest, sat down across from me and drew patterns in the thin layer of dust coating the tabletop. Then she spoke. She said, Dad, our bodies will be dust someday, right? And that, listeners, is where the entries in Albert Tide's diary end. But we want to again thank Lionel Tides for sending these entries to Out of All Doors, and we hope you found this segment informative and interesting. If you have similar artifacts with a connection to the outdoors that you think would be appropriate for Out of All Doors, please send them to outofalldoors at gmail.com. Whew, well, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a bath. And I'm talking about a water bath, and definitely not a dust bath like those preferred by California quails and chinchillas. And now, here are some more Gentleman's Mills 2014 Thanksgiving dinner centerpieces. Wrong diorama. Instead of a diorama of the original Thanksgiving feast, this diorama instead features Saturn and its moons. Prices slashed. Need to move this item. Big buckle. A real buckle from a real pilgrim's hat. Have a piece of history right on your dining room table. These buckles were taken from actual pilgrim corpses dug up from graves around New England. The Hungry Pilgrim, a large hollow ceramic figurine of a pilgrim with his hands on his waist, his head thrown back, and his mouth wide open. Children can scoop spoonfuls of any food on their plates that they don't like into his eager maw, then later smash him open with a hammer so the dogs can eat. Plymouth Rock, an enormous boulder delivered by truck to your house along with a reinforced Thanksgiving dinner table designed to hopefully bear Plymouth Rock's weight. Table Talk, an omni-mouthed head which asks a thought-provoking question whenever it detects over three seconds of continuous silence, rests on a bed of Indian corn and tree bark. We are what we eat. Each family member first inserts a small camera down their throats into their stomach. Then a circle of monitors is set up in the middle of the table showing the digestive processes of a mystery family member. Watch and guess whose stomach it is. When you're done eating, press the question mark button on the monitor to reveal whose stomach you've been watching the entire time. You might be surprised to find the stomach belongs to someone you know. $100. The centerpiece is none other than a crisp $100 bill under a domed serving tray. Who will be thankful enough to reach for it first? No one eats until someone picks up that bill. It's a trap, though, because the $100 bill rests on a mouse trap. Youch! Was it worth it? Also, the one who reaches for the bill is legally excommunicated from the family. Hen pen. A pen laid by a hen. Demon of the harvest. Statuette of the pagan demon of the harvest with the unpronounceable name. He's astride a combine, bearing his awful teeth, eyes glowing red, and he's brandishing a bouquet of mums. King of thanks, an ornate throne for the most thankful person in attendance to sit upon. What he or she doesn't know is that it's a trick seat that drops the king of thanks into a vat of broth beneath the table right as he or she is at the peak of pomposity. Squall, 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 taste
Okay, so the next question says, Dear Qual, Q-U-A-L-L, I enjoy your podcast appearances and product reviews on the popular video site YouthTube. YouthTube? Who is this person, Matt? They don't know what YouTube is? All right, well, my question is, if a person in power knowingly and maliciously spreads false information to impressionable younger parties, isn't such dissemination fraught with an evil purpose? Thanks, Ferd. Fred, I assume. This is... Let's move on. To Squall, as I was listening to the last show, I couldn't help wondering, isn't it true that if a personage who is not an expert in a field claims to be an expert or allows others to refer to him or her as an expert, is it likely that that personage's motivations are deceitful in intent? Love the show, XOXO, Billy. Matt? Yeah. There's only two more. I'm trying to read ahead. Dear Squall, have you ever received letters congratulating you on your good counsel? Besides this one, J-K-L-O-L, peace, Rond. (laughs) Rond? I can't tell. Do you do you think this is about legal stuff too, Squall, or is this? He says he's re- congratulating you on your good counsel. He claims, or she. She, yeah, she. I'm neutral about this because it's, it's neither positive nor negative response. Well, just answer. Have you have you ever received letters congratulating you on your good counsel? No, I have not. All right. This last this last one isn't attributed to anyone. Have you ever been tried in a courthouse for any matter, good or bad, Matt? What? It was anonymous. It was an anonymous letter from a fan of the show, especially a fan of of Squall. And you know, I think all the legal proceedings kind of got the the wheels turning, and they they kind of wanted to, you know. Matt, what's Matt? What's really going on here? What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean? Why are you trying to get Squall? Why are why are where are these questions come from? Why are you trying to get Squall to answer these questions? Listen, I, I think you 
even though it was a little bit difficult, I think I have everything I needed to get there. And, what, uh, what are you saying? This was a setup? Were any of those questions real? As soon as this show goes live, all of that, you know, the material will be recorded and disseminated, and uh, there we go. And I'll have something right there, proof, that I can show. And the only way you can prevent that is if you, you know, cancel the whole podcast. So I guess squall words are just going to have to be held forevermore. Truth, truth of what? What is this proof of? Proof that you're dumb? That you're full of <laughs> That you don't, even, you don't even work for money. You work for some full insurance company. I can't wait to burn this onto a CD and send it right to my lawyer. Wait, so, Squ- Matt, this was all just a scheme. You invented these questions to get Squall to answer them so that he would incriminate himself because you're, you're sticking with this legal action? Well, Emmanuel's letter was real, but everyone else's... Well, why, why, we, why should we believe any of that? You know what? Okay, that, that's it. This has been Squall Takes the Bait. I'm shutting this down. Squ- Matt, uh, you... <laughs> So we're now three episodes deep into Out of All Doors, and emails from our listeners are starting to roll in. Uh, We truly appreciate and love hearing from all of you, but one email in particular seemed to stand out, so I'd like to share it with you now. Dear Out of All Doors crew, love the podcast so far, but I especially love the fact that in it I've found my vocal twin, host Adam Drent. That is to say, while listening to the show, I was shocked to hear what sounded like my own voice coming from my computer speakers. My girlfriend and I find it absolutely uncanny how much Adam and I sound alike. Hope you find it as amusing as we do. Your fan, Jason. Now, here's the remarkable thing. What you just listened to is not me reading Jason's email, but actually a recorded message of Jason himself, which he had attached to this email. They say that everyone has a twin somewhere out there in this vast world, but thanks to our little podcast, Jason and I have been lucky enough to find our very own vocal twin. We here at Out of All Doors found Jason's message so amazing, we've asked him to come in and join us for a quick chat. Jason, thanks for making the drive so you could come by today. Of course, thanks for having me. So, Jason, why don't you give us your best Adam Drent hosting Out of All Doors impression? <clears throat> All right, let's see. So many stars. <laughs> well, if anything ever happened to me, it's good to know someone could step in and take over uh, the hosting responsibilities. Oh, I would never. <laughs> yeah, you better not. <laughs> So the thing I love about this probably most is I heard your message in the email, and like you, I was pretty astounded. I honestly at first thought maybe it was a prank, like a friend of mine edited down recordings of my voice to put together the sentences you were saying. But then I wrote you, we talked on the phone, and you agreed to drive up here. And I have to say, when I first got a look at you, I mean, I think for some reason, I think as weird as this would be, I was sort of subconsciously expecting you to look like me. So I answered the door, knowing that you were coming, I was expecting you. But I get a look at you, and I say, can I help you? thinking you were maybe a salesman or something. Then you spoke, and instantly, oh, this is Jason. Oh, I think there are some physical similarities, too. I noticed that right away when I first saw Jason, you. Jason, come on. For example, you're how tall? Six foot seven. Okay, and I'm I'm six one, which is not six foot seven inches. That disparity didn't stand out to you? Well, maybe not height, but everything else. Everything else like what? Like your two-foot-long braided beard? For the record, listeners, I, Adam Drench, your host, do not have a two-foot-long braided beard. I can't grow any beard. When I'm clean-shaven, though. Okay, when you're clean-shaven, tell me this. Which celebrity do you most often get compared to? 
You know Michael Berryman? <laughs> yeah, I know Michael Berryman. Well, Jason, in the short time I've known you, it's funny, you might think I'm crazy, but I feel this sort of strange connection with you. It's almost like when we talk, we could finish each other's sentences. I know, Adam, it is a bit odd. Like you said, uncanny. I'd like to try a little something here if you're up for it. Real quick, clear your mind, and on the count of three, we'll both say the first word to pop in your head, okay? <laughs> All righty. Okay, on the count of three, one, two, three, go. Pistachio. pistachio. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we have to try that again. Ready? One, two, three, go. Triceratops. Triceratops. One, two, three, courtesan. One, two, three, banjo. banjo. Pouch. Ergonomics. Kentucky, slop, ottoman, fudge, ponytail, barnacle, persimmon. Oh, boy. Let's stop before this gets creepy. I think it already did. Well, before we let Jason go, we have a little treat, a little something we've put together for our listeners. So, Jason, let the listeners know what you do for a living. Well, Adam, I am actually a professional singer, mostly studio work, doing backup vocals. Well, no wonder your vocal talents fit right in on our little podcast. Now, I'm a bit embarrassed to be doing this, as personally I have no vocal training outside of a few elementary school Christmas concerts. Well, let's not say how long ago. Needless to say, it's been a while. But what do you say, Jason? Let's do this. Give us a count in, Jason. I'd be delighted. One, two, three, four, a one. I say potato, and I say potato. I say tomato, and I say tomato. Potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. Take it, Jason! You say laughter, and I say laughter. You say after, and I say after. Laughter, laughter, after, after. Let's call the whole thing off. Ah, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off off. Big finish together now! Let's call the whole thing off! (laughs) Oh, that's how you do it, Adam. Well, I'm sure our listeners could tell which one of us had four years of training at Berkeley. Uh, You were just a bit pitchy. You keep working on it. I'll come back in a year. Folks won't be able to tell us apart. I'll do that. In the meantime, thanks for stopping by, Jason. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to get in touch, write into the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com, just like Jason did. Who knows? You, too, just might end up on the show. Hi, my name is uh, Matt Martin. I'm a uh, contributor to Out of All Doors. Uh, I, I asked Adam if he'd give me a little space to, uh, to read some of the works of one of my favorite Western authors, Felton Hausch. Um, Hausch is often overlooked in the world of Western novels and overlooked in the world of literature in general, for that matter. Um, and I want to take an opportunity to pay tribute to this you know, unheralded author, one of my favorites. And so that his genius can be appreciated by a lot of people, you know, not, not just the few fans that he has. Um, so, yeah, without further ado, I'd just like to share a few selections from Felton Hausch's finest work, Approach the Night. <clears throat> the gray, cracked, silted, dry searness spread in dusty patterns on the parched and torrid desert blanket. 
looked we onward and up to the sky, paling dark light dawn-like, and then clouds crashing the view, much as would great large sky beasts suppering on the troposphere. Where could we have been to see such a view like this? Even then I didn't know, nor my horses either. They looked dumbly on, yet wisely, their ears carried in the flick of their manes, dark haunches pulsing like women loins. Were they utterly dumb, or beyond men's understanding, keeping their secrets in their deep, dark eye pools? I asked Filchi, the closest horse, but as usual, the animal remained as mute as a mirage. Kratis fell down again. I lack surprise. The desert bruises the clumsy, such as he, and he was no exception. His face smeared with baked beans like a bad animal. He looked around, hoping no one saw him fall. We all had. Apache fires burned far distant like smelter candles. I considered the situation, deemed it hopeless, and carried on afresh. If we were to go any farther, we'd need to confront the savages straight away. I aimed with dead reckoning, spat thrice, and carried on apace. The savages greeted us unwarmly. They circled our likes, their ilk unsustained by violence alone. Kratis was speared through once, twice, again, by arrows, their broad bad tips sending blood outward like unsentient geysers. He shrieked like the damned, did Kratis. None were safe. The slow became dead. The Apaches laughed their battle laugh, much higher pitched than expected more the giggle of a wrong child misbehaving happily. Kratis flopped around disgracefully on the desert floor, a false ballroom for his flailing horizontal tango. The Apaches guided their horses over his flop body and shot him through several more times with arrows until he was as perforated as Jediah's very coffee-making morning pot, but Kratis remained undead. The Apache's eyes looked on like devil beads in their hard, hellish faces. Seeing the opportunity, the rest of the men and I snuck away, the horses and ourselves on tiptoe, as the Apaches now poked Kratis with their arrows, amazed at his undeadness. The mountain loomed higher than an immense backside. Trees arrayed on its hump like soldiers stood still-like as sentinels standing stoically strangely. The day's final sun rays shot through the trees like arrows through a fat, shrieking man. We approached in dread and in hope, knowing that all who come prosper yet fall. What were we but all men? We spat freely. At camp that night we heard strange deep sounds of forest life. The fire glared redly at the intruder, the ash caked in its center, the lot of us sharing Kratis's baked beans to a man. Then came a figure within our circle, and we bore arms, expecting predator or death. But it was in fact Kratis, yet living, who came in fully grimaced to our campsite. I noticed another man high in Kratis's baked beans behind his very back. Where were you guys? Kratis squeaked. We looked around stunned yet unashamed, more amazed than anything. Kratis carried within his person more arrows than any man had witnessed. Like a dog of hell, he wobbled into the campsite, breathing heavily. Where are my beans? 
asked Kratos as he sat fully down. We all of us shrugged as in unison. The fire bore its heat upward and away into the ether. Kratos sighed loudly, his wounds sighing too, all of it a squeal, and we as men struggled not to laugh at his noise. The woods therein were rumored to be more menaced by bear than man. After the fire shrank to the smallest core of light left unponderable, one of the men coated Kratos's tent flaps with honey, leaving the unopened jar as a totem in front of Kratos's sleeping form. As a unit, we prayed then to be rid of the burden, the curse of the land and the hardness contained within, each of us knowing privately the folly of such thoughts and by extension, man's ability to withstand his own life upon the world. I'm racked with guilt, and I'll tell you why. I forgot to mention the official corporate sponsor of Out of All Doors in Episode 2, and I'm talking about Featherwood Frames. Then, to compound that guilt, they shared the podcast on their Facebook page, happily declaring themselves to be our official corporate sponsor. I'm here to right that wrong. You should buy glasses from Featherwood Frames. They make the frames out of local wood, and they only use human-powered tools. You know who uses materials other than local wood and uses tools powered by non-human sources? Malevolent dictators. The guys at Featherwood Frames are the furthest thing from malevolent dictators, and if you buy some glasses frames from them, I think you'll agree. They have a website, and it's not hard to find. It's at featherwoodframes.com. This is a real business and a real website, I swear. If you want to doubt the existence of Gentleman's Mills, well, fine, I can't stop you, but I urge you not to doubt the existence of Featherwood Frames. That would be an error with potentially tragic implications. Some of their designs are so good that I've been dedicating a few minutes a day to staring directly into the sun in order to ruin my vision to the point where I'll need glasses. Then, when the pain becomes unbearable and I have a change of heart, I put on a pair of Featherwood Frame sunglasses. Now, this has been a silly and untrue anecdote, but it was relayed to you with the best of intentions, and I hope you won't hold that silliness and untruth against Featherwood Frames, who have trusted me to write the copy for this little commerce, which is what I call commercials. Well, I did that time, and I regret it, and I probably never will again. Featherwood Frames. Light as a Featherwood. Close your eyes. Sit back. Relax. I want to get through this part because this isn't the fun part. So please try to get comfortable and relaxed and all that as quickly as you possibly can without feeling rushed. You're ready to be transporting to a soothing outdoor scene? We'll say you are. And away we go. You find yourself in a field of vegetables ripe for the harvest, which can only mean one thing. It's time for the harvest. If you feel any doubt about any of this, just look at the corn stalks. See how brown and dry they are? I hope you brought your corn harvesting implements. Don't worry, you did. Look inside that bag on your back. See? There's the corn frisker, the corn spindler, the corn middler, the corn prod, the corn splitter, the corn cramper, the corn rounder, and many more. And look, there's even an extra long corn warder. I can tell by the wonderment in your eyes that you're impressed by the length of that corn warder. I knew you would be. Go on, give it a whirl. (laughs) Oh, wow, look at you go. Ward that corn, you. See how that extra length gives you that warding reach you've always wanted? It's amazing how just a few more inches... Oh, 
Oops. No, no, it's fine. Just leave it there. I mean, yes, I had it custom-made for you, but it's useless now, right? There's no fixing it. Corn warding isn't easy, even with a corn warder that long. Maybe my next harvest you'll, uh, know what you're doing. But let's move on. That was just an appetizer. The main course is a visit to the harvest tree. Do you know about the harvest tree? You do, but you'd like me to explain it to you again anyway, just because you like hearing it? Okay. The harvest tree is a single tree growing in the middle of all these gardens and fields. It's very big and it grows everything you'd ever want to harvest given your Midwestern upbringing and limited palate. Corn, three kinds of squash, Indian corn, another kind of squash, you name it. Let's go find it, shall we? All we have to do is walk toward the middle, through the corn fields and bean fields and soybean fields and potato patches and wheat fields and carrot fields and potato fields and, oh look, we're here. The harvest tree. You walk around its wide trunk. This trunk is so wide, you say, with a twinkle in your lively little eye, that it may in fact have some junk in it. The wideness of the trunk may indeed indicate the presence of some variety of junk therein. No one laughs, but keep in mind, there's no one else around. An audience might make you nervous, so there isn't one here. You walk up close to the harvest tree and you hug its trunk. Even though the harvest tree can't move of its own will, you feel as if it's hugging you right back, wrapping you in a coarse, barky embrace. Now you release the harvest tree and step back to admire the good, ripe things growing on its branches. Go ahead and pick some. No one's watching. No one will ever know. And I'm not saying those things because you're not supposed to pick from the harvest tree. If you weren't supposed to pick from it, why would that Indian corn look so delicious? But don't pick the Indian corn. It's not nearly as delicious as it looks. It's mostly decorative. Oh, I see what you're eyeing there. You spotted that perfect harvest melon way up at the top of the harvest tree. Mm, looks good, doesn't it? But how are you going to get up there? You're going to have to climb the harvest tree, you say? Well, you're going to need a ladder to get to the lower branches. Where are you going to find a ladder all the way out here? Well, if I were you, I might start by looking in the bag on my back again. You dig through the bag, scattering corn harvesting implements about you with reckless abandon breaking a few more of them, I might add. And then, in the bottom of the bag, you find a ladder. Heedlessly leaving the corn harvesting implements on the ground next to the empty bag, where anyone could steal them or break even more of them, you lean the ladder against the trunk of the harvest tree and clamber up onto a low, thick branch. You are officially climbing the harvest tree. Hand over hand you climb, higher and higher, up through the branches, past luscious corn and sparkling gourds, I mean squash, well, both. The branches are getting thinner, but they're still quite sturdy under your bare feet, the soles of which are protected by a layer of thick callus as tough as boiled leather, very boiled leather. You pluck a potato in passing and take a big bite. You find that inside its skin, it's already mashed and buttered. A breeze rustles the dry, golden-brown leaves all around you, making that dry, crickle-crackle-crickle-crickle-crackle-crackle... Nope! Okay, come on, Adam. They make that dry, crickle-crickle... Crickle-crackle-crickle-crackle-crickle-crackle-crick-crack-crickle-crack-crack sound that you recognize from the harvest times of your youth. Up, 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 you're still going up. 
You smell wood smoke and a faint whiff of approaching snow clouds. You look down below and all you see is the densely crisscrossing branches of the harvest tree, laden with alluring harvestables. But you don't want just any alluring harvestable. You want that harvest melon from the uppermost branch, remember? So keep climbing, friend. You do keep climbing, ever close to that harvest melon. You can almost taste it, but what does it taste like? You have no idea, but you will soon, oh so very, very soon, assuming of course that it's edible. You can't see me, but I'm winking right now. Let's just say that, yeah, it's probably gonna be edible. Finally, you arrive at the uppermost branches of the harvest tree, popping your head up out of the leaves. There, within arm's reach, is the harvest melon. But first you pause to look around you with the fields and gardens stretching out on all sides, ready for the grandest harvest the world has ever seen. And look straight above you in the early evening sky. It's the harvest moon. But it can't be harvested, nor does it do any harvesting. It just hangs around during the harvest. The harvest melon, on the other hand, can be harvested. You reach out and pluck it from its branch. Do you like its weight? Do you like the texture of its rind? There is one way in which the harvest melon is exactly like the harvest moon, though. They're both inedible. But, before you get mad, here's a tip. Doesn't the harvest moon look close? And doesn't it feel like you could throw the harvest melon pretty far? From atop the harvest tree, you hurl the harvest melon at the harvest moon, and it's a direct hit. At first, nothing happens. But then a crack appears on the harvest moon's surface. You hear a shuddering rumble. And then, in the hazy light of the harvest sundown, the harvest moon splits open, and an enormous harvest of two similar varieties of squash comes pouring down out of the heavens, crashing through the branches of the harvest tree and thudding into the fields and gardens all around. You have done the unthinkable. You have harvested the harvest moon. You climb down and collect your plentiful squash reward. Now then, listener, wasn't that pleasant? All of us here at Out of All Doors hope you found it pleasant. Sorry about the part where I couldn't say crickle, crackle, crick. No, crickle, Where I couldn't say crackle, No! Crackle, no! It starts with crickle! Crackle, crickle, And so on. Well, anyway, you remember the part. You heard me do it once, so you know I can do it. So until next time, as you remember the time when I did that part right, or as you do anything else, do so while allowing the peace of Out of All Doors to go with you even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the third episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Steve Tartaglione, Grang Lynch, Casey By, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show thanks to Squall for doing what he did. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd be thankful for. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed, then be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you can rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back in a month with Episode 4 of Out of All Doors.